You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we have another amazing compilation episode this week on the topic of performance, how to perform at your peak from some amazing guests. I'm so honored to introduce at least four people. We're going to have at least four experts from previously recorded podcasts, including Daniele Boelli from The Drunken Taoist. He is a professor and MMA fighter, an interesting combination of a guy, uh, someone who has been a big inspiration in my life. We have Gary Arndt, who was photographer of the year, took off after selling his company to take photos across uh, the South Pacific. He has a, He's an amazing travel blogger, someone who is a huge inspiration to content producers across the world. We have Craig Ballantyne. Craig is a really cool guy as well. He is the uh, CEO of Early to Rise, and he's the author of The Perfect Day Formula, How to Own the Day and Control Your Life. Uh, which is an excellent, excellent uh, reference for anybody out there. Jason Wachab, I am, uh, hopefully I pronounced his name right. It had been a while since I asked him how he pronounced it, but he is from Mind Body Green, the CEO and co-founder, which is another amazing resource if you guys are into healthy living. Hopefully you are if you're listening to this podcast. And of course, my friend, Colin Wright from the Exile Lifestyle. He is a OG travel blogger, digital nomad uh, that I have known since 2008 when we started Under 30 CEO. He was one of our original writers and uh, a really great author and uh, a thoughtful guy at that. So anyway, guys, there's a lot of really great content out here compiled, and I'm so excited for you to share. If you'd like to connect with me, hit me up at Matt Wilson TV on Instagram. Would love to connect with you. Send me an email, matt at under30experiences.com. We are hiring at under30experiences, under30experiences.com slash careers. If you are bilingual, if you are a tour guide, if you are someone smart and want to work in a really exciting travel industry, uh, let me know. Also, one other thing, if you want to come take your mind and body to the next level. September 30th in Bali, Indonesia with my girlfriend, yoga teacher, Luz Garcia. All the people who I just mentioned, you can go back to the archives and get their full episodes, which will all be linked up in the show notes on under30experiences.com slash blog. All you have to do is click the Live Different Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Sit back for another excellent episode. Appreciate you. Today, we are here with a very special guest, Gary Arndt. Gary is a travel blogger from everything, everywhere, and he is also a podcast host who has traveled to seven different continents, 175 different countries, and what I thought was really, uh, really coolest about all the places that you've gone are all the national parks and uh, park 
park service areas, I think, as, as they call them, throughout the United States. So over 125 of those. Um, so I am really excited to hear, of course, about travels, uh, but then about photography as well. Well, Gary, you've won all sorts of awards uh, for your travel photography. You have desktop backgrounds that are absolutely amazing. And uh, I'm just looking forward to hearing your story and hearing where you got today, taking off in 2007 and traveling for nine years. That is, uh, that's quite a feat, Gary. Well, thanks, and Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Um, I'd love to just kind of hear where where you got your your start, um, especially especially business wise. It sounded like uh, you've always had a business mind and uh, mind, and you've always liked the internet. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and and hear your story. Well, I graduated college uh, back in 1991, and that was. Right after that was kind of when the internet became a thing. It's when the World Wide Web was developed. And I uh, went to school in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and then I went back home to Wisconsin for a couple of years, coached a high school debate team. Uh, and then I moved back up to uh, Minneapolis, and my college roommate at the time said, yeah, you can make like $20 an hour programming. You should come and do it. And I had a degree in uh, mathematics, so... I wasn't really intimidated by the concept of writing code. And while this was happening, uh, my, my roommate's brother was teaching a class at a local science museum about this thing called the World Wide Web. And this was back before Netscape was even a browser, right? Wow. So this is the NCSA mosaic days. Um, and he told his brothers, like, you know what you should do? You should m make a program to make it easy to hook up a database to the web because at the time there was no Linux, there was no PHP, there was no MySQL. You had uh, most websites were run on Spark workstations by Sun, which were like $20,000. You had to buy a copy of Oracle, which was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and all of the, the coding to hook up a database to, the, the, to a website had to be done with Perl scripting, which you almost never ever hear about today. And so he said, well, you should, you should make it as easy to hook up a database as it is to write HTML. So make like a markup language. And you should do it on this new operating system that's going to be the next big thing called Windows NT. Because that didn't exist either. Wow. And Windows 95 didn't exist either because this is before Windows 95. So he, he began doing this. And the product, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a product called Cold Fusion. It's now owned by Adobe. But he, he built that. And he had companies coming to him saying, well, could you build a, a website for our company using this product? And he didn't want to do that. He just wanted to focus on the tool. And so he said to me, he said, well, Gary, do you want to do, you want to do this? So I was like, sure. So I began doing these data-driven websites, which now is no big deal. Everything, WordPress is all done via databases. But... Um, I began doing this, and eventually more companies wanted me to do it for them, and so I hired one of my friends who had a friend, and four years later, I had a company with 50 people, and I sold that to uh, what became the, the consulting wing of British Telecom, and uh, I was 28 years old, so that's, I, I managed to sell before the dot-com bubble burst, and started a network of video game websites, I went back to school, 
studied geology and geophysics for two and a half years, and I reached a point where I didn't quite know what to do with my life. Um, the, the business climate in Minneapolis at the time was not really great for startups, uh, especially if you tried to raise money. I was an investor in one company. We tried to do that, and it was just a disaster. And uh, after I had sold my company back in uh, 1998, the company I sold it to had offices all over the world. And I convinced them to send me on a worldwide tour to all their various offices to talk about web application development. And so in January of 1999, I went off on a three-week whirlwind tour around the world where I went to uh, Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, <clears throat> Paris, Frankfurt, Brussels, and London. And that was the first time I had ever really been anywhere. So I'm in my late 20s and the first time I ever really left the United States, not including Canada. And uh, I really kind of got the bug for it. And when I was thinking what to do with my life, this is back in 2005, I was like, well, I like to travel. And at the time, I, well, I still do. I have one of the largest collections of National Geographic in the world. I was like, well, I catched the idea of selling my home and traveling around the world. And I thought I would travel around the world for a year or two. And two years passed, and it became three, and it became four. And then next thing you know, it's, it's just something that kind of became my livelihood. And it's something I'm still doing today. And a couple months ago, I finally slowed down a little bit. I got an apartment. I had been traveling full-time for almost nine years, but um, now I just have a place to go between trips. So this year, I was in India a couple weeks ago. Uh, two weeks from now, I'll be in Ethiopia. I'll be going to Serbia. I'll be doing a trip this summer to um, Central Asia. I'll be going to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, I'll be doing a long trip in Alaska to visit some of the national parks there. And uh, don't really know what I'll be doing later in the year, but still traveling a lot. Wow, that, that sounds amazing. And Gary, if you could bring us back to your, your mid-20s when you were probably, you probably had just locked yourself in a room with up to 50 other people and, uh, and were just coding all of the time. Is, is that correct? Can, can you kind of give us the uh, the the difference in your lifestyle between then and, and now? You know, I actually wasn't doing a lot of coding. Uh, I would say most of the coding I did was in the first year when it was basically just me or me and a couple of my friends. As the company grew, I was in more of a managerial position, trying to secure lines of credit, office space, equipment, you know, all that stuff and sales, which is, of course, the biggest thing, uh, being on sales calls. So I wasn't actually doing a lot of coding. Uh, it's very difficult to be doing the actual coding and run a company because there's so many other things that have to be done business-wise. And you have to remember that today you have podcasts and websites and there's all sorts of tools and resources and mentors available if you want to run a business. Back then there was nothing. I mean, there was literally nothing. And I, it was all just kind of figure it out as you go along. So I hired some people and then someone like, well, you, we have to pay taxes. So I was like, oh, okay, how do I do that? And then I found, okay, there are services where that will, they will handle your payroll and they will handle all that stuff for you. Um, and I was like, well, we need, we need more space. You know, we were working out of our, our apartment originally. What do we do? So, you know, we, it was this iterative process of just learning all these things um, 
as you go along. And they're also the concept of like a lifestyle business didn't really exist either. I mean, it was a business business. Sure. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And uh, that's cool to hear that you were explicitly focused on the business, the business business, because you hear about so many of these, uh, you know, genius coders or, or people like a Matt Mullenweg from WordPress, or uh, I've even heard Kevin Rose say this on interviews from, from Dig, is that well they just wanted to get back to coding and they had built these large businesses, but what they really like to do is code, and uh, that gets away that gets away from them. But it, as you said, it's impossible. I mean, somebody's got to run the business. And that's kind of that uh, that entrepreneur's dilemma, uh, like you might read about in the E Myth or or something like that. Um, so that's that's interesting to hear about, Gary. Well, I have a, I had one guy who was a mentor to me. He kind of helped me sell my company and go through this whole process of negotiation, of which I knew nothing about. And it, you know, he also, you know, his he had a company that was, I don't know, it sold for over a hundred million dollars. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is that there are roles that certain people have in certain stages of a company. And I like the startup aspect of starting a business, like starting it from scratch. Anything I've ever done successfully in business, I've done with no funding. I've bootstrapped everything. Uh, No one else, you know, involved as a shareholder. Um, But you get a, a business up to a certain point where you have a staff that's big enough and you're bringing in a lot of revenue And the skills I have in doing that, I don't think translate well to a company that's, you know, millions of dollars in revenue or or even larger. And I have, I have friends and I, you know, I've known other people that have grown very large businesses. And I think where you see a lot of businesses fail is that you have maybe a founder who did a very good job of starting and growing that company, but it gets to a certain point and it requires a different skill set that's out of their control. No, I, I, I think that definitely makes sense. Uh, and what made you successful to this day is not necessarily what's going to make a company successful for the next, you know, two, three, five, ten years. So that's, that's cool that you had the foresight to see it. And then uh, why did you decide to give it up or sell it or cash out? Um, because starting a consulting firm wasn't something that... I grew up saying, man, I want to start a consulting firm. It was something that just kind of happened. I was at the right place in the right time, and, and circumstances were such that I was able to grow it. And when the opportunity to, uh, to sell it came about, I felt, first of all, I, I, I think everybody at the time, if, if, even if they didn't explicitly say it, kind of knew that valuations of internet companies were ridiculous. So being able to uh, exit before there was a, a downturn in the market was something I wanted to do. And I just wanted to do other things. Um, now that- the, the constant sales cycle and having to deal with clients is not something that I was really into. So being able to do something else and uh, start other companies was uh, something I wanted to do. So that was the opportunity. Sure. No, that makes sense. There are so few Mark Zuckerbergs that 
can start with this vision and get it off the ground in their dorm room or the, you know, or the, the you, even you see Steve Jobs, but well, of course he had a, uh, a long period where he was not with Apple and, you know, the Bill Gates, of course, uh, even at some point, yeah, sure, he's the richest man in the world, but does that mean he's going to be able to get Microsoft to the next level or is he going to even want to do that? Is that his greatest impact on the world? Well, no, clearly no, because I, I certainly think he's making a better uh, impact on the world with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but it, anyway, what I wanted to to um, really really ask you about Gary was, you know, there is a huge myth out there that you need to be wealthy or you need to be rich to go out and travel or to do what you what you have been able to do. You have to sell your company at 28 and be this whiz kid or, or whatever. But can you, can you dispel that for us? Money helps. That's, that's undeniable. However, uh, and I probably had more than most people when I started traveling because I sold my house, I sold a business. But I've met a great many people who have been traveling for roughly $1,000 a month. So that's like 12000 a year. And quite frankly, if you don't move around a lot, if you stay in one place, it can be even cheaper than that, uh, sometimes much cheaper. So, for example, you could get a, an okay place in Thailand for like $200 a month. You get a really nice place for maybe four to $500 a month, which is way less than what you'd be paying you know, in the U.S., or anywhere in Europe, uh, and food is proportionally just as cheap as well. So yeah, it can be done quite cheap. The, prob the reason why people think it's expensive is because what they see advertised to them are usually package tours that have flights and you know, you're staying at chain hotels and things like that. And yeah, if you do that, you're going to spend a lot of money. Uh, it's primarily traveling to Europe or other expensive places that you see advertised. And that's where people get the impression that it's so expensive. But if, if you travel to places which are less expensive and you're willing to not stay in a luxury property, uh, then you can get by extremely cheap. Sure, absolutely. And if, yeah, if you only have a week or two to go away and you're, you're tied into a contract and a, a mortgage and everything else that comes with our, our westernized life, our western lifestyles, sure, well then it's, your travel is going to come at a premium. But if you have that flexibility to be able to go to Southeast Asia and find a place that's way off the beaten path, absolutely, absolutely you can do it. We have a very special guest, someone whose podcast I have listened to now for a very long time, Daniele Boelli. Daniele, I'm in, uh, in the middle of reading your book, Not Afraid on Fear, Heartbreak, Raising a Baby Girl, and Cage Fighting. You're a martial artist and a university professor, which is a uh, heck of a combination, which I, I have to say that I that I absolutely love about you and your philosophy on this. So, uh, Daniele, welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. What do you think of the book so far? How's uh, that going? I like it. It's uh, you know some guests we have, and I 
uh, I open up the book, you know, and I'm able to to page through it, or I download it on on Kindle mm-hmm. because I'm in Costa Rica, and uh, you know, you you can flip through it and bright. But this is not one of those. This is one that um, you know you you want to read and you want to enjoy. And so I'm probably I don't know eight chapters in or so, but I've I've really enjoyed hearing your story. And actually, as a podcast listener. I can hear your voice actually narrating it. So that's, that's really cool. That's, that adds an element to it that I, I didn't expect. So you find yourself speaking in an Italian accent by now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm digging it. So, no, thank, thank you for this. this is, uh, I really appreciate it. Cool. That's great, man. Yeah. Um, so, so, Danielle, if for people who haven't heard of you, um, I originally... I think I originally heard you on Joe Rogan's podcast. I said, this dude with this Italian accent is pretty cool. He has some awesome philosophies on life, but they're also practical philosophies. This is not just like I'm going to sit here on my throne as most university professors do and and tell you some things that you read in books. I mean, you have real life experience and uh, you routinely get the, sounds like get the crap kicked out of you and also kick the crap out of other people, but uh, you, you, you walk the walk as well as just talk the talk. Uh, and you have a, a podcast called The Drunken Taoist. And uh, I was wondering if you could explain just the, just the concept of what a, a drunken Taoist might be. <laughs> I think it's about, in some way, I mean, on one level, I dig Taoism, of course. And I, a part of the reason why I dig Taoism is because, to me, it's not, a, you know, most philosophies, most religions are about you have to endorse a certain sets of beliefs and live that way. Taoism is, doesn't ask you to believe in anything. To me, Taoist philosophy is about recognizing just how the universe works and there are some principles that if you adopt them and you're able to apply them they will help your life and if you don't well that's just your thing it's there's no great cosmic significance like whether you embrace it or not it's really just your business and whether you want to embrace part of it and not others that's also just your business so i dig the idea of uh of a philosophy that's not a rigid ideology that requires you to embrace a whole set of dogmas and concepts that are not necessarily of immediate impact in reality. Like what you were saying earlier, I dig the notion. I don't like empty philosophizing. I don't like to just sit around and muse in the abstract. I like ideas only in the measure that they can help day-to-day life. To me, that's what it's all about. You know, if ideas or concepts or philosophies can help elevate the quality of day-to-day life, I'm interested. If they can't, I'm not. Um, That's really what it boils down. So to me, Taoism is a very, very practical kind of concept. And then, of course, the drunken part is to make it a little more fun. Like, uh, we're not talking about some dude in a monastery locked up somewhere, but Taoism in enjoy life to the fullest, let's party it up type of Taoism. That, uh, that sounds like a good type to me, Daniele. I, uh, I, I like it. That's, that's really cool. Um, I, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to ask how you got into this because uh, I know you took martial arts from, from a young age and a lot of people listening might not really know much about Taoism or about, uh, about 
judo or Bruce Lee or any of that school of, of very Eastern, something that uh, Westerners think is, is very foreign. Could you, t- uh, could you tell me how you got into that a little bit? I'm curious. I think, I mean, on one level, I was just a good nerd, so I would read about a lot of subjects. And, you know, probably the first few times when people mentioned Taoism, I read uh, some stuff. And I think I read probably a bad translation of the Tao Te Ching that made no sense to me. And I was like, this is crap. I don't like it. This is just, I don't get what anybody finds in this. But eventually, I'm sure I ran, uh, probably indirectly, I'm guessing maybe reading Alan Watts or Joseph Campbell or somebody like that, I found enough Taoist references that would make it interesting and appealing. And then I started digging more and eventually, you know, getting a good translation of the Tao Te Ching. Some of the stars start making sense. The way the way Alan Watts breaks it down is a lot more digestible, for particularly for Westerners, to start understanding some Taoist concepts and how they actually apply to life. And then it started making perfect sense. To me, that was like he wasn't reading somebody's ideas about life. He was reading life, like this is how things work. This is all the key principles of Taoism to me are so obviously observable in day-to-day life and obviously applicable in day-to-day life that it doesn't feel like you are, uh, I'm going to study about this arcane, weird Eastern philosophy. No, this is just the way the the universe works. That is, uh, yeah, that's an excellent way to to think about it. What got hooked? Uh, what got me hooked, uh, of course, you know, I, I really enjoy your podcast, but I, I believe that you put maybe the first uh, lecture in your lecture series about Taoism up on your podcast. This is a lecture yeah. series that I listen to, and when people hear lecture series, they think of like, oh, boring university, uh, I don't know, it's, it sounds like a lecture series, but I mean, it's applicable stuff to... Yeah. To to your everyday life, I mean, this we're seeing this uh, personal growth or this self development, this industry, right, kind of taking off, and there's all these podcasts, people trying to better themselves, so, you know, people giving each other support online, blah blah blah. But I mean, this is uh, when I did your lecture series. That's that's how I that's how I felt about it. Like it was another uh, another building block to becoming a. a all-around better human, and there was a particular story that I wanted to ask you about, and maybe you could sure. uh, maybe you could could share it with the the audience because this is what got me hooked, and it was about the the guru that they traveled far and wide to go and see, and they they went and found him, and uh, he made a particular comment uh, about wine shops and whorehouses, and this is this is the guru speaking, and uh, I'm curious if you could share that with the audience because because I know you'll do the story a lot better justice than I will. Yeah, my favorite guys, I think actually there was a Chinese guy, like a Taoist, uh, a Chinese Taoist. Um, I'm, I'm going to mention a slightly different story, not much because it deals with the same issues, but one of my all-time heroes is this Japanese Zen monk. and I mean, Zen is very... Zen is basically a Buddhist version of Taoism because Taoism and uh, Buddhism, when it comes to Zen, they are very, very similar. So, you know, you can kind of substitute one for the other most of the time because they are talking about many of the same principles. But this guy is uh, E.Q. Sojun, is, um, was a Zen monk from the 1400s whose main passions in life were Zen, women, and alcohol in no particular order. 
And the man is absolutely hilarious because he was uh, on one end brilliant. You know, his grasp, uh, his grasp of Zen was so much more advanced than most of his contemporaries. And at the same time, precisely because he got it, he was he hated what the Zen establishment had become and the way it had become like this ritualistic thing, kind of dogmatic. He felt like he was missing the point. And one of his key ideas is the idea that there's really no separation between the so-called spiritual, the sacred, and ordinary life. The only difference is most people go through day-to-day life in a state of kind of asleep, lacking awareness, whereas uh, enlightenment to him is just being aware. He's uh, going through life with full awareness of everything. But once you do that, then the so-called spiritual life doesn't have to be this uh, holier-than-thou, removed from uh, daily concern, far from it. So he was fully, and like, there's a story about him where, as an old guy, some of the people who have been studying with him for a while, they sit down with him for a chat, and he tells them, look, I'm old, I'm going to die at some point soon. The, um, after I die, I know some of you are going to take to the mountains and meditate, and uh, I'm on the forest. Great, good for you. Some of you are just going to go after women and just that's how you're going to spend your time. Both types of Zen are fine by me. But if you become a cleric and start blabbing about Zen as the way, then you're my enemy. You know, that's like the whole idea of like both types of Zen, right? Just random wild sex with women and meditating in the mountains to him are one and the same. It's like, well, as long as it's done with full awareness, as long as it's done with a certain le- then it's it's the same. There's no separation between the so-called sacred and the profane. Wow, that is uh, that is a, a, a really cool concept. And for someone who who's listening right now and they're saying, "Wait a second, I I need to rewind that. I need to hear exactly what Daniela is saying, exactly uh, what this master was saying," because uh, as you just explained that there's no separation between, uh, I believe you said the sacred and the profane. Uh, I'm curious if you can explain a little bit more how one can be in a wine shop or a whorehouse or how one can be having wild sex with many different women and how that can actually be Zen. Well, because the whole point of this is to is a transformation of consciousness that's about how you perceive reality, the ability to be 100% in the moment, the ability to live with full awareness, the ability to, to do things that really have nothing to do with what you're doing. It's a matter of how you relate to the world, how you perceive things, and how you position yourself in regard to them. So the what part is pretty much secondary from that point of view. Which is why, you know, you can find uh, the secrets of the Tao by gardening. You can find it by meditating. You can find, you know, there are three million human activities that are just empty vessels. What counts is the kind of consciousness you put in them. So the emphasis for EQ is what kind of presence do you bring to your day-to-day life? Then that's the part we worry about. The what you do 
completely secondary. So, and Kikyu clearly has fun horrifying the Zen establishment that's all about these rules of behavior and what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. By doing all these things that I'm sure some of the monks would do in secrets, kind of like the dirty secret you're not supposed to, and he has zero problems just going, you know, he tells much of the Zen establishment that he finds the company of hookers much more enjoyable than the company of other monks. Um, <laughs> he finds them more honest, more to the point, more real in a lot of ways, and you know, that's that's his kind of thing. His stuff is about developing a certain presence and awareness, not living a holier-than-thou kind of life. I am here with Jason Wakab from Mind Body Green. He is the author of a new book, which I'm really excited to talk about. And uh, we are actually both in New York today, and we did not, re well, I realized it too late, I guess. And uh, so we're Skyping from across the East River, but uh, that's all right. Jason, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, you, you got it. I, uh, I heard you on uh, my buddies Brandon and, uh, and Dan's podcast, Zen Dude Fitness. And yep. uh, yeah, I liked, I liked what you had to say. And um, your, you know, your new book sounds really interesting. It's called Wealth, uh, but it's spelled W-E-L-L-T-H and how I learned to build a life, not a resume. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to chat with you about exactly that. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, you, you got it. Um, Jason, I'm curious if you could just kind of share your, your story overarching. I mean, you're the uh, co-founder of this independent media brand, Mind, uh, Mind Body Green. And um, yeah, I was reading up a little bit. I mean, I've, I've been to the site many times, of course. But uh, yeah, I know that you have a, a like millions of visitors that read every month and uh you know you have a team of over 30 people um and so yeah i'm just curious to, as uh if we could hear your story a little bit on on how you got to this point sure so here's the quick version i am 41 i went to columbia and played basketball there I graduated in 1998, and, and back then, uh, there were no startups. Uh, people generally did one of three things. One, if they had an aptitude for science and were really interested in helping people, they probably went to med school and became doctors. Uh, two, if they had really great grades, they probably went to law school. And three, if you didn't have either of those things, uh, you probably went to Wall Street. So I, I went to Wall Street, I became a trader. I was someone who did not grow up with money and so really desperately wanted to make money. Uh, first of all, to pay off my college debt. And, and, and I think second of all, I just really saw money as something that bought freedom and was this, this thing I always, you know, I never had. So I just, I, I really thought it would bring me happiness. And so uh, <clears throat> two years in, had a really great year trading and, and did really well financially and was able to pay off my college debt do things like buy my mom a car and, and like had arrived from a financial perspective. And when that happened, you know, my, my, my biggest month financially, um, earnings wise was like the most miserable month of my life. I was in a relationship that was very serious and was falling apart and I was just miserable. So I, I saw early on this contrast 
and, and the reality that, that money did not buy happiness. Here was, here was money, this thing I wanted my whole life, I finally have it, and I was just, ter- just in terrible shape because this relationship was falling apart. So really opened my eyes, uh, really great life lesson early on. And then, you know, a couple of years later, 9-11 happened, and I was a few blocks away when that happened and changed my life like it changed a lot of people's lives and just really started to question, like, what am I doing? What do I want to do? And so finally uh, <clears throat> left to become an entrepreneur and work for a healthcare startup, which was a great learning experience, but ultimately didn't work, and then started a cheesecake company, low-carb cheesecake, which... You know, great, great lessons there, but ultimately didn't work. <laughs> and then uh, launched, uh, I was a co-founder of a really great organic cookie company called Crummy Brothers, really delicious organic chocolate chip cookies. And we were in every Whole Foods market in the country. And, you know, around this time, like, I'm also, like, feeling terrible because I, I've, here I am, I'm 30, and I moved back home, and I'd made all this money, and took me, you know, saved a lot, but, you know, you know really left with, with nothing, and started to question, like, what am I doing, and, you know, I should go back to Wall Street, and, you know, all my friends are, are rising their careers, and here I am, sort of, uh, you know, going, seems to be going the opposite direction, so I'm excited to be part of this thing, Crummy Brothers, and we were in every Whole Foods market, and I, it was, it was exciting, but, it was hard, and we were uh, it required a lot of traveling. I flew almost 150,000 miles domestic in one year, and wow. I'm six, six foot seven, uh, sitting in a coach seat. Not not a good situation. It turned out I had an old basketball injury that got exacerbated by all the flying and 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 compression and and stress. Stress played a huge part of it, part in this. Um, and I had two extruded discs, L4, L5, S1, pressing on my sciatic nerve. So I had excruciating sciatica shooting down my right leg. It was terrible. My right leg was like a lightning rod. I, I could not walk. Saw a doctor. He said, you need back surgery. It's non-negotiable. So I, I sought a second opinion. And you know, I have nothing against surgery. I just view it as something you generally want to avoid. And uh, second doctor said the same thing. You need surgery. And it was almost like an afterthought. He said, you know, maybe some yoga or therapy might help. So I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give yoga a shot. So started with some really light yoga. We're talking like five to ten minutes, a couple restorative poses in the morning and at night. And over the course of a few weeks, I started to feel better. And over the course of a few months, I completely healed. So I never got, I never got back surgery. And so in that process, I started going down this path of looking at stress and spirituality and nutrition and the environment, and, and I made a lot of changes in my life. And, um, and I, I was like, holy cow, everyone's got this, this health thing wrong. Every print magazine leads you to believe it's about weight loss and vanity, and I looked really good at the time, but I was falling apart. Uh, and the web was dominated by people, you know, Googling for symptoms and then freaking out and run into the emergency room, which I'm sure, you know, I think all of us have all done at one point in our lives. Uh, and I was like, it's more nuanced. It's more holistic. It's, it's this blend of mental, f- physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well-being. It's like quite literal. It's, it's mind, body, green. And so launched the site, uh, found my two co-founders and, and didn't even know what to do with it. We were in beta, you know, 
so we were, we were out there, but not really out there, so to speak, in 2007 and officially launched in 2009. And uh, it, 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 here we are today, uh, so seven years later, full time into this, we've, we've come a long way and uh, you know, le learned a lot along the way. Uh, you know, this idea of, of wealth, which I spell W-E-L-L-T-H, is something I've become really passionate about in redefining success. And, uh, and so, so yeah, that, that's the abbreviated version uh, of the journey. And I, I, I'm sure I could drill down a bit more because I've been doing this for a long time, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome, Jason. And it, there's a million different points that I'd love to ask you about, uh, but the one that, that really stuck out in my mind, especially when it comes to this unique blend of Western medicine, yet holistic stuff, which which your website is all about, and you have millions of people that are are reading this on on Mind Body Green. I I'm curious as to when you're in, you know, you've seen your second doctor, and he says, yeah, you you have to have surgery, or you know, and then they kind of say as an afterthought, or you could try yoga and learn how to touch your toes or, you know, it's like right. generally doctors don't know anything about yoga or don't know anything about any other. Uh, okay. Now, my, now my biases are coming up, but they don't know, usually don't know much than other than what they read in their science textbook and, you know, how to treat, uh, you know, how to treat, X, you know, it's just like the person who Googles it online and says, okay, I must have this. Uh, my knee hurts. Fix knee. Well, no, it's probably because your posture is wrong. And it's probably because, you know, you've been wearing high heels or it's probably because, you know, there's a million different uh, things when you look at the body holistically. But most doctors just want to look at uh, the symptom and fix the symptom and not fix yep. the overall uh, the overall operating system of, of your body. But I, I'm so curious as to like how that could even cross someone's mind. Like the, the, I, I get it, right? Because I'm a practitioner of yoga, but for you were, you, were you open to this stuff or were you thinking, oh yeah, maybe I could do 10 minutes of some funny little exercises and that might actually help and not have to make me go under the knife. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that decision? Yeah. I, I went into it just not really having any expectations. I, I saw surgery as a last resort and I, I think I thought to myself, you know, I'll be okay. You know, I'll, I'll try therapy, I'll try yoga, I'll try whatever. At the end of the day, if I have to get surgery, I'll get surgery. I'll be fine. And so I, I really didn't go into it with, with expectations. It was just something along the lines of, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I'll see how it goes. And I think that having that mindset where there, are, you, there is no attachment and there are no expectations is oftentimes very powerful. Sure. You're just open. And I was like, open, I'll try it. And we'll see what happens. And then you start to feel things in your body and you start to see results and then you start to gain confidence then something else happens with your mind and body and which I think is very powerful too. And then and, and that I think just allowed me to pick up steam when I really started to see like, oh wow, this is working. Like, holy cow, like I gotta keep doing this. Like this is fantastic. Like I believe I can heal now. So it's sort of, it's a blend of I think uh, letting go and not having attachment and at the same time, uh, in the process, believing you can heal. I think, I think that combination is powerful. 
Yeah, I think uh, if you were to go into surgery, right, you were thinking, all right, this doctor, I'm not exactly sure how this surgery works, but this doctor is going to fix my back, you know, please, it, it's like you're giving up uh, all personal control in the matter, and you're saying, all right, doctor is responsible for realigning my spine, or, or fusing, yep. you know, fusing the disc together, or, or whatever exactly uh, is going to happen in this spinal surgery, but if you go into something different, right, a, a more holistic okay, you're not just fixing the bone or you're not just fixing the, the spinal cord. You're, if you're doing yoga, you're strengthening the stabilizer muscles, which are going to help you uh, sit and stand better or fly on, you know, fly on an airplane better or not be compressing and jamming your spine the whole time. It makes sense, but it's more than just like, hey, I need to fix this very tiny part of my... Uh, you know, it, I need to fix this very tiny part of my body. And then once you probably saw the, the benefits, it started to be maybe a psychosomatic thing where yep. you're, you're like, oh, wait, I'm letting go of all this pounding on my body. Or I, I read uh, somewhere where you had talked about uh, why do you know so many football players struggle with violent crimes? Yep. Well, they've been practicing violence their entire lives, or they yep. come from very violent upbringings. Um, so it's yeah, it's really interesting to to hear you talk about how um, how that all probably worked together, and then you saw that. Could you talk maybe a little bit more about how your life changed after you started to feel a little bit better and and started yeah. to do yoga? Yeah, well, you know, yoga saved me in a lot of ways. I, I literally went from not being able to walk <laughs> to, to being fine. And so, uh, and being an athlete, I, you know, I was a gym guy. I did the elliptical, although I've always hated running. Uh, I, I, I saw the gym as like my go-to exercise, my, go, my go-to practice. And that changed. And I, I just, yoga had saved me and it, and it became a huge part of my life. I started going to, you know, classes publicly everywhere and just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, it became really apparent uh, that yoga to me was the ultimate mind-body practice. And, and also like, uh, you know, I think, I don't think all yoga, all yoga is good, but I don't think it's created equally like this idea of, you know, finding yoga where you're really practicing ease. And I really got that ingrained in me from Tara Stiles and Michael Taylor here in New York, like this idea of like, you know, practicing ease, like that yoga is about practicing ease. If you want your life to be easy, like you should practice easy and yoga in a lot of ways is practicing that. And on the contrary, like I talk about football players, like football players having a violent issues with violence. It's like, no duh, like they, they practice violence. You can't turn you can't turn things on and off and so I really connected with yoga in that way and uh, you know it just became a big part of my life and couldn't get enough of it uh, and, and strangely enough something I've talked about too you know I went from going you know doing it at home to finally being comfortable to go to a public class to go into public classes every day as my buddy green started to really grow uh, Ironically, like it started to affect my, my yoga practice. You know, here I am, I'm preaching yoga and wellness, and like, what happened to my practice where every day became, you know, once a week and then once a month? And I was like, holy cow, like, well, I, what happened to me? And so I've, my, my yoga practice has now evolved to something 
that I do on the weekends at home for 15 to 20 minutes and I never, and I can always commit to that. Like I believe in, you know, the, the best, uh, the best practice is the one you actually do. Today I am here with our very special guest, Colin Wright from Exile Lifestyle. Colin and I decided just to start recording, skip the chip chat in the beginning because we started <laughs> and it got interesting and we're like, well, sh I thought shit, people should start to hear this. So Colin, you are in Kansas. You have been all over the world for the last, I don't know, I want to call it 10, 10 years, maybe eight years you've been traveling internationally and, and writing books and now you've got a podcast and uh, you cover things like nuclear diplomacy uh, you are a hardcore minimalist, or at least you were at one point during your blogging, blogging career. I'm just pumped to catch up and talk. One of the things I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit was minimalism. I went to your blog, and the very first thing that I saw uh, published just a few days ago, the first one, two, three, four, five words in that blog post are possessions can make us happier. I would mm -hmm. love if you could elaborate a little bit on what you're thinking <laughs> there because you were part of a very interesting project, your two buddies who you, who you mentioned, the minimalists. Uh, I'm a hardcore minimalist myself. I'm getting more used to being in Costa Rica now for a few years time and accumulating more things as it happens. But uh, tell me about minimalism in your take. Yeah. Well, so, so minimalism is it's often misunderstood, unfortunately, and it's misunderstood to, uh, in the implication that it means just owning as little as possible, that you should own as little as possible. And if you own fewer things, you are more philosophically noble than somebody else or something like that. And that's bullshit. That completely misunderstands the concept of it. Uh, minimalism is focusing on what's important so that you can, uh, you understand what's important and then you can spend more of your time, energy and resources, including money on that important stuff. And you do that by excluding the less important stuff. And so you, you can't do that unless you know what's important first, but it's also then a matter of just focusing. And so what I usually tell people is like, if unicorn statuettes make you happier than anything else in the world, you should buy the best collection of unicorn statuettes you can find because that is your thing. That's what makes you happier than anything else. Just make sure that you know that that's what makes you happy. And then don't buy the big screen TV, buy more unicorn statuettes. For me, um, experiences tend to provide a whole lot more value than possessions. And so for, for seven and a half years, I traveled with what I could carry in my, my carry-on luggage, my carry-on bag and my laptop bag. And so I, I was kept to a very small footprint in terms of possessions. Uh, the, the same is true now. I'm, I'm looking around my flat here in Wichita, and I have, I think what I've added to what I carried in my bag is a bookcase a chair, a rocking chair, a desk, and my podcasting microphone and my guitar. Um, not much beyond that. I mean, I have appliances now because I've been learning to cook, among other things here, things that I've been putting off for years. But, but that's the thing. Like, your priorities can change. And for me, having some things that allow me to learn to cook 
is very important and it doesn't diminish my experience to have, you know, a couple of cast iron pots and a spatula. It actually increases and uh, amplifies my positive experience and try, allows me to achieve what I actually want to achieve. And so what I was saying with that post is that like, if you get the right things, if you have the right things and ideally only the right things, nothing that's superfluous, then those things are immensely valuable. And that's how things should be for us. They should add to our experience. They shouldn't subtract. They shouldn't distract us from the actual important things in our life. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, as a minimalist, right, I often feel guilty when I acquire new things. And, <laughs> yeah, I've lived now in the same apartment for 15 months. Uh, I often pack up and have absolutely no problem pouring stuff, putting stuff into my backpack and just going. And I never check a bag, so I'm not carrying much. And, uh, you know, but I do often start to feel guilty. And, uh, you know, I went for probably five years without a car. So, <laughs> I got Chip Shirley is, uh, is asking me another question here. But I got to tell you this story, Colin. Sí, Shirley. Listo. Listo. Okay, sí. Uh, bueno. Sí, aquí tiene y necesitas las llaves a salir. Sí. Okay. Estoy en el teléfono, pero puedo darte las llaves. Y Colin, sorry, man. Puedo darte las llaves. Housekeeper needs. Okay, eso es tuyo. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I didn't think she was done. Um, but I bought a, tr I brought bought a truck, and uh, I love it. It makes me so happy. So, Colin, after another quick interruption, uh, we do <laughs> apologize, but uh, this is a professional show. I want you to know, maybe not as polished as as yours is, and I think that you're a lot more articulate and well-spoken in the English language than I am, but we will persevere. Colin, I was telling you that I didn't have a truck for four or five years. I lived in New York. I went traveling, lived in Costa Rica. I got to tell you what happened. Costa Rica is so much better with a vehicle. I can get to the secret beaches. I can get to the waterfalls. I don't have to walk or to hitchhiker take collectivo like I always did. I wore it like a badge <laughs> of honor. I really was stubborn and, uh, you know, and it was nice to save the environment and nice to, you know, because I totally saved it myself. Uh, it was, and it was nice to, to save the money. And then Colin, it got worse. You know what happened after that? I, not only did I buy a vehicle and one that I really liked and I got a good deal on it and blah, blah, blah. Then I bought new tires, all terrains. I'm talking <laughs> Firestone, I don't even remember, like, but the badass all-terrain tires that I wanted, and I got a great deal on those. And I don't know if it's just the deal that made me so happy. Probably that has a lot to do with it. But every time I look at the tires, I'm like, that truck looks fucking awesome. And the great thing is that it performs on the road, off the road, and this possession is making me happy, right? And I feel bad about it. Talk me off the cliff because this is against <laughs> my values, Colin. 
No, you shouldn't feel bad about that at all. It sounds like you're getting an immense amount of value. That's exactly what money is for. That's what you should be spending your money on is things that add value to your life. The problem is if you get something and then it just sits there and gathers dust. And uh, to me, like I always picture, and I still do this, like if I feel that feeling about something, then I, I take a look at it and I'll just like sit there maybe like, so I have to look at it all the time and make a decision about it. And I feel like Pharaoh in his tomb, like burying himself with all his riches. Like if somebody else could use this thing that I am not using, then I get rid of it like immediately. It's a really great heuristic because then I think, well, somebody else, I'm adding value to the world because someone else, for someone else, this is their thing. This is their truck with all-terrain vehicle, uh, all-terrain tires, right? And uh, But it's not for me. And it's just sitting there not giving value to anyone. So if you're feeling that, then it's then it's maybe time to get rid of it. But if you're feeling what you're feeling, that's exactly what you should be spending money on. That is minimalism. Huh, okay, I, I really like that. I'm looking around my apartment right now and I'm saying, what? The television actually, it's unplugged, but I do plug it in to watch sports sometimes and cable comes with the place, uh, and also the TV is not mine, so I'm not going to get rid of the uh, semi-furnished apartment with television, and I'm not going to get rid of the TV, but uh, that's probably the only thing that I see. Everything else is really practical, uh, mm. and that's good. Like that rocking chair that you've got. I got a rocking chair, too. It came with the place, but it's oh, on I the front porch. love rocking chairs. So great. Yeah. That's uh, that's awesome. That that's awesome. And um, well, I'm, I'm good to hear that I'm not crazy with minimalism, and I am a firm believer that stuff, you know, a, a busy uh, when your mind is busy, oftentimes you can look around and you're gonna say, well, there's a lot of clutter in my life right now. Messy, messy desk, messy mind, messy desk, messy or messy room messy mind and uh, I just am so much more productive in a nice clean space and it's gotten almost I don't want to say I'm OCD right but and sometimes I think like all right dude maybe just leave the dishes in the sink because that will help you feel better and, and really break out of your super disciplined life that I that I subscribe to but um, mm. it, it's I feel like it's gotten a little worse, right? Not to judge my behavior pattern here, but it's gotten a little worse, I would say. But also since uh, my yoga and meditation practice has gotten much more advanced, any clutter that I find around bothers me more. Noises bother me a lot more. I feel like I really want to be in, in nature and things like air conditioning humming in the background really bothers me or, or this is this is when I really think I'm kind of going crazy is my refrigerator running bothers me um, <laughs> but I, I, I really I think all of that has to do with minimalism because I like to have minimal amount of thoughts and bullshit going on in my head and if I feel this uh, hear the same thoughts popping up like oh da 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 uh, I don't know, so one that people would have often would be looking in the mirror and criticizing themselves. Well, that's no way to live your life to hear that all the time. So I try to really get minimalistic uh, in my thought patterns also. Can you agree with me at all here? Do you have any practices uh, in, in that regard to, that come to your mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is true. I think it, it's the same 
idea. Uh, the same way like minimalism is applied to architecture, for example, it's the uh, focusing on the important stuff, the structural stuff, and that is what's beautiful about it. And so focusing on the same thing within yourself, focusing on the things that that are structural to you, whatever that happens to mean, and it'll be different for everybody, I think is a really good way to, to approach kind of personal development and becoming a better version of yourself. Uh, that said, I, although it is like really wonderful, I totally agree with you in that once you start paying attention and really focusing and monotasking a little bit more, that little things that didn't bug you before start to bug you. I, I would also argue that it's important sometimes to be sure that you still can expose yourself to those things and then deal with it because a life without any friction at all is not one where you're you're kind of incentivized to grow, whereas a life where you're able to structure certain things and then grow in that particular direction, uh, there's a different type of growth, I think, that comes from being challenged. And that's something I, I'm sure that you uh, know this, that like travel, that's one of the big selling points of it is that it's uncomfortable to a certain degree, but uncomfortable in a way that makes you grow. And so to me, removing completely all friction from one's life would also be kind of a negative thing because then life would be so easy that you'd become very frail. Whereas if you are able to grow uh, by, by building a life that is more optimized for yourself while also making sure that you are capable of coping with the real world and your, your refrigerator noises uh, you know, in a healthy way, then I think you're getting the best of both worlds. I have been thinking about this concept a lot. I'm really glad that you brought this up. And I recently heard a pretty cool analogy uh, so uh, all the stuff that I spend my time working on, aside from my business, is biohacking stuff and my meditation practice and optimizing my body and the environment around me. And uh, I used to really have issues, right, when I would go back to New York and I would get reverse culture shock and I would be like, oh my God, it's so noisy here, I can't, I can't cope. Right? But I heard a, a really interesting analogy recently, and it said, well, don't build, when you're thinking about building yourself, don't build this super high-performance Porsche, right, who, if you get a scratch on it, you're going to break down and cry, or if it rains a little <laughs> bit, you need to put it in the garage, or if, it, uh, if the conditions aren't just perfect if it's below 45 degrees so we can't take it out because there's a chance of snow and we wouldn't want to give you any salt on it they said don't build that car so don't build that life and um, I, I heard Wim Hof the Iceman whose Wim Hof method uh, I do his breathing method and his cold thermogenesis it's supposed to help your your immune system and your you just calm your your mind and, and do all these amazing things. I've seen a lot of benefits from it, but he said, you know, he said, oh yeah, I can be anywhere. He's like, sure. I find my peace and quiet under the ice where he holds his breath for like five minutes and goes down there. And it's just in this complete meditative form and all this. But he said, before I was the ice man, I used to go to the busiest, noisiest intersections in a big city. And I do my meditation practice there. And he said, that wouldn't bother me at all. So, you know, he built himself a, a Hummer. You know what I mean? Yeah, He's, yeah. Uh, durable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I really like how you, how you brought that up. 
Yeah, it's an important thing. Unfortunately, too, it's often left out of that type of discussion because I I do think that it's good to try to like optimize things, to try to get the most that you can out of whatever you find to be valuable. But I think we optimize too much in one direction and we build the sports car when that unfortunately then puts us in a position that if we ever need to do driving off of something like the Audubon, then we're absolutely screwed. And you see this with people's diets a lot too, where it's miraculous that we can have the type of diets that we have today in, in the developed world in particular. But then if you want to travel and if you want to eat street food in India, you are screwed because your system has not been exposed to the elements. It hasn't been exposed to anything except the most ultimately purified bits of, of whole fooddom uh, for years. And I think that's great when you can give yourself that. But I think it's also important to expose yourself to uh, to those frictions in, in whatever aspect of life you happen to be talking about. Man, I, I could not agree more. And you'll be so proud of me. You know what I did this morning? I had a half, <laughs> I had a, half a piece of toast. And I so proud loved it. It was so delicious. It, would, it was smeared probably with some margarine from a little Costa Rican place and uh, I said this came with toast and I said you know what I'm not trying to make myself allergic to gluten I don't want to be a celiac one day right but I choose not to eat it uh, I, I choose not to spike my insulin levels and I, I you know I, I really uh, am trying to avoid neurodegenerative disease which runs in my family and so I'm doing my best but I don't want to make it where I go to you know an Italian buddy's house and and all of a sudden I can't eat his pasta I mean that right. would just be a shame yeah that, that, to me, has always been one of the biggest uh, arguments against ever labeling myself. Like, I, yes. if I were to use a label, I, I probably eat, like, 85 or 90 percent vegetarian. But I don't ever want to label myself that way because then in those moments when – I like to use India as another example. If I would have gone to a friend's house and they – that family prepared meat, that is a huge honor. That is a big sign of respect. And they spent a great deal of money in proportion to what they make for that food. And to be that guy who says, I don't eat meat, when they've gone and done this thing that they would have no reason to believe that you can eat it, like that to me would be missing out on such an important facet of life. And I, I totally understand the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of these different choices that people make. But I also think that we limit ourselves so frequently in taking on these these different lifestyle choices and ideally any lifestyle choice that we take on provides nothing nothing but benefit and to me that usually means that you you go into it like 85 or 90 percent while avoiding that whole uh, you know just covering yourself with labels and saying now i'm part of this group and that defines me today i am here with craig ballantyne Craig is the author of the new book coming out, The Perfect Day Formula, How to Own the Day and Control Your Life. Uh, this is something that we talk a whole lot about on the Live Different podcast, so I'm just excited to, uh, to have Craig. You may have read a lot of Craig's stuff um, through Early to Rise, uh, the website that he has been the editor of since I believe 2011. Uh, Craig, you have helped a lot of people start their day right, and we're happy to have you here and uh, have a little chat. Yeah, it's really great to speak with you, Matt. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so Craig, I wanted to just start off by um, allowing you to, to maybe say, explain how you got to where you are today. And, uh, you know, you're the, the author of this new book and you've been the editor of this, this motivational site. And I would love to, to hear your story a little bit. Yeah, the funny thing is I started all the way in the fitness industry back in uh, 1998. I graduated with an undergraduate degree. I went and got a master's degree in exercise physiology. And I started writing for Men's Health Magazine back in 2000 as well. So I was a young guy just like you, Matt, uh, back then. And so I built up credibility that way. It was really fantastic. And I started um, selling my turbulence training program on the Internet back in 2001 or 2002. Did that for basically that decade, um, but I also really wanted to branch off into helping people improve their lives in many different ways. And so I was always writing articles on not only on fitness, but also on productivity, time management, and finding alternative ways to succeed in life. And I started coaching some of my friends in how to do what I did, which was sell fitness information products online from anywhere in the world. And I've, you know, I've been lucky to travel like you are traveling right now. And uh, from there, I got into some mastermind groups and I you know, met the right people. And I was actually able to take over what I referred to at one time, the business of my dreams, which was this website, Early to Rise, which had been started all the way back in 2000 as, in 2000 as well by another a gentleman named Mark Ford. And we, me and my business partner, we bought Early to Rise from my mentor, Mark Ford, in 2011, and we've been running it since. And so there's actually a pretty cool story behind that uh, if we get a chance to talk about that. Yeah, I would, uh, I, I'd love to hear it. Um, as, the, as the readers know, uh, I started uh, under30ceo.com back in 2008 with my co-founder, Jared O'Toole. And uh, yeah, would love to would love to hear your story on how you went and acquiring that property and, and what came out of it. Okay, cool. So I didn't get my first business coach until 2006, and that was a really big mistake on my part. So you know, I recommend everybody listening. You know, even if you find a you know if you have if you're a business type person and you want to uh, get better, you really need to have some type of mentor, and it doesn't need to be paid. Um, you know, there's lots of people that want to give advice once they uh, become old guys like me. And so I finally invested in my first business coach in 2006. And the very first question he asked me on our very first call was, hey, Craig, in five years from now, what do you want your business to look like? And in 2006, it was simply a fitness information business. We were selling just, you know, manuals on the Internet. We hadn't even branched out into videos yet. And so I said to him in reply, I said, I want to have a business like Early to Rise, which was that, you know, the business that I own now. And so, you know, that was, you know, that was just me putting it out there to the universe, I guess, uh, as they say in the, the movie The Secret. And from there, I just went and started doing the right things. I started connecting with the right people. I started improving my skills in writing. I started branching out into some coaching and so on and so forth. And I met my business partner in 2008. And then we were actually on a trip in 2010 uh, with this guy, Yannick Silver, who does some really similar stuff to you uh, for um, my age group, you know, adventure trips and stuff. And we were on an adventure trip with Tim Ferriss out in the desert, shooting guns and driving cars. And after the trip, me and my business partner, Matt, we went to uh, the airport and we started talking. And he asked me almost the same question, you know, what do you want your business to, to look like? And I said, you know, I really want to 
just keep moving ahead to my dream of getting early to rise. And so fast forward another six months from that, and he's in a seminar with Mark Ford, the owner of Early to Rise, and Mark and him got talking, and Mark said, you know, I'm ready to move on from Early to Rise. I, you know, I might shut it down. I might sell it. And, you know, Matt was right there. He said, hey, I know a guy that wants it. And so it was five years, three months, and 17 days to the date of that first coaching call with my first business coach when I said I wanted to own this business or own a business like it that I actually was able to buy the business and start running it. And so if anybody's watched the movie The Secret or heard of anything about the law of attraction, I don't necessarily believe that you'll just get your dreams from sitting around and thinking about them. You have to go out and take action. And so I call it the law of action attraction. And you're a really great example of that, Matt. You know, doing stuff, taking action, adding value to the world, and you're going to get the the achievements that you want and hit your dreams. And, you know, that's actually part of the, the perfect day formula of my book is creating a vision for your life and knowing what you want to achieve because that'll help you move in the right direction for it. That's amazing. And I really appreciate how before the call you said, you know, we were, we were just chatting before we started recording and uh, I said, you know, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention? And uh, you said, you know, I'm just here to, to add value uh, out there to your listeners and uh yeah absolutely sure you can you need to dream you need to think of things you need to uh in you know they say set an intention and that's what you're what you focus your energy on and that's the action that you're that you're talking about so so that's that's pretty cool and uh can you tell us where you were able to take early to rise yeah so you know we took over the business in 2011, it had actually peaked in 2007. It, hit, it helps people improve their health, their wealth, and their wisdom. And they were selling a product back in 2011 that really helped people improve their wealth. And then that kind of uh, you know got out of out of vogue, I guess you would say. It was no longer popular, and so the revenues went back down. And so when we bought it, it was doing okay, and we brought it back up to do much better. We've brought in my fitness business to it. So, um, you know, I, 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 as we started that, I was running my fitness business on the side and running early to rise, but we've now combined them into one and it's really driven the business. Now we have programs for yoga. We have uh, cookbooks. We have online coaching. We have online cooking classes, which is something we're really excited about. And then we've gotten into this, you know, the book publishing for the personal development side of things with, with my book. Uh, that you can, you know, find on Amazon. We actually sell this kit with all these workbooks that take you through designing your perfect life and designing your five pillars for success and designing uh, what I call the rules for your life, which are very important uh, so that you maximize the structure in your day so that you earn so much freedom in your life so that you're able to to do whatever you want at night and, and on weekends, which is very different from my generation, which has allowed their work to blend into the evenings and into the weekends so that, you know, people my age, we always feel like we're working unless we have structure in place to, to separate work from home life. All right, Craig, I would like to dive in right there because I can definitely attest I might be 10 years younger than you, but I am certainly letting the two blur. And when I'm off, I'm off. You know, when I'm on airplane mode, there's no way to get into it. Light a, light a flare, and I'm probably not going to see it because I live in the jungle of Costa Rica. So that's, that's cool, but, you know, you 
I personally fall into the habit of working. And if I didn't have other plans, well, then I'm probably going to crack open the laptop. Um, now, had a buddy asked me to go surfing, right? Like, that would have been great. Or if I had uh, plans to go get a drink with a friend or, or whatever else um, people do during the evenings, yeah, sure, that, you know, you have that blocked freedom time. Uh, but if you don't, I certainly fall into the habit of just starting to work again. Um, if anybody else is listening and falls into that habit, can you tell them how to get out of that habit? Certainly. So the book and, and my ideas on creating a great day is broken down into three segments. And it's based on actually some stoic philosophy from a gentleman named Epictetus who existed 2,000 years ago. And he has a great book called Discourses, but if you just want to read a, a real quick little book on his teachings, The Art of Living is a wonderful book, and it's really inspired my life. And I, I interpreted his teachings as saying one of the most important lessons, control what you can, cope with what you can't, and concentrate on what counts. And then I took those three sayings, and I broke it down into how we can organize our day into morning, afternoon, and evening. And so in the morning, that's when we should be most structured because that's when most people are working. So we may as well work while they're working. So we're not working when our friends have free time. So we get up and we focus on our number one priority. That's really important. And you use what I call your personal commandments or your rules for living to be structured in your day to get ahead of the curve rather than playing catch up. You know, it's don't sleep in, don't hit the snooze button, get up and work on your number one priority. You also should find something called your magic time, uh, Matt, which is what I believe everybody has. Um, some people are going to be night owls. Some people are going to be early risers. Some people are going to have this magic time at two o'clock in the afternoon. And what this magic time means is that you probably have found yourself really, really productive on some days where you're really just in the flow. And that's when you can literally get three times as much work done as you could at any other time of day. And it always seems to be the same time of day. And so everybody might be different, but if we just keep an eye on our daily habits, maybe keep a time journal or something like that, we'll be able to identify this time. It might be an hour, it might be two hours long. And if we can protect this for our work, then we can get so much more done in a regular day compared to all these other days. And if we continue to do that, then you don't have to work 10 hours a day. You don't have to you know, crack open the laptop at night to catch up because you've really taken advantage of uh, your best productivity. So that's the morning aspect. And then in the afternoon, we use this system that I call the five pillars of success, and I'm happy to explain those, to cope with what we can't control. And there's so many things that you can't control. I mean, you can't control the heat and humidity in Costa Rica right now. I'm sure, you know, as much as the air conditioning is trying to help you, you can't control your boss. You know, if people listening have a boss, you can't control how he's feeling, if he's grumpy, if he has bad habits. You can only con uh, control your responses to that, and you can only cope with that external environment. But there's uh, ways of doing that. And then we use those rules and pillars so that we do open up time in the evening for freedom, to concentrate on what counts, as Epictetus taught us, which is family, children, hobbies, health, wealth building, whatever it is that you really want to focus on. Even if it's just a Netflix and chill is uh, what I believe the, the kids are saying these days. You know, that is what you want to 
have the freedom to do. And you can only do that, Matt, if you have structured your day. And so I use this paradox uh, saying, the more structure you have in life, the more freedom you will have in life. And I really believe it's true. It takes people a little bit of uh, a few minutes to understand it. But when I show them, listen, if you're more structured in your workday, you're going to be able to be free at night and you can go have that drink with friends. You can go surfing. You can do whatever you want. Most people tend to get it at that point, and I hope that it's helped a few people to eliminate some of the distractions in their life so that they get more done and have that feeling of accomplishment at the end of the day. Okay, so Craig, I really uh, appreciate how you said that you can only control your responses to the external world. So whatever gets thrown your way, it doesn't it doesn't matter, you know, you can't lash out at your, you, you can't, you can lash out at your boss, but it's, it, whatever comes your way, you just need to be okay with it and realize you can only control the feelings that come up within, within you, 